there, and welcome to another edition of DishCast. This is a, an incredibly exciting one and a special one, partly because I'm actually recording it at 9 a.m., which, as people who know this DishCast will know, is, 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 a, nine is, a, nine is a, a time that happens for me once a day. So this is quite a, quite a new thing, getting up this early, especially on the Cape. Anyway, I'm caffeinated, probably not caffeinated enough for our guest, who is the legendary Larry. Summers, probably one of the most brilliant individuals of his generation. He's an economist and academic. He served as the chief economist of the World Bank, was Treasury Secretary under Bill Clinton, director of the National Economic Council under Obama. He was also president of Harvard University from 2001 to 2006 and remains there as the Charles W. Eliot University professor. Just reading that, Larry, that is, that's a lot. You've been, you've been at the center of things for a very long time, except one would think for the last couple of years or the last few years where you've been more of an outside voice. I want to go back as I do with these, all these interviews and ask you, what was it like where you grew up? Where did you, what were you interested in? You, you were born into a family of staggering intellectual accomplishment. You have two Nobel Prize winners in your immediate family. Did you immediately feel compelled to be an intellectual? I don't think I ever felt compelled to be anything. I was brought up by two parents, both of whom were academics, both of whom were intellectual in their orientation to life. So I sort of took to it as a kid. I liked solving math puzzles. I liked the issues of the day. And so being engaged in thought and argument was something that just seemed like the natural way to live to me. I had the same experience, but, but without a family that just constantly argued and debated, which was fun, but I didn't have that level of discourse and, and, and math, math problems. When did you start solving math problems? My father liked math and I loved numbers as a, as a kid. And so I don't know whether I was three years old or four years old, but we would walk through a train station and discuss which of the numbers for the different trains were even and which numbers were were odd. I have been told the story that at some very young age, I was asked about a set of different tracks and whether they were even or odd. And I got every single one wrong, which on the one hand was getting every single one wrong. On the other hand, it showed that I did understand the difference between odd numbers and even numbers, even if I wasn't familiar with, uh, accurately familiar with the labels to be able to get everyone wrong. But I was always, uh, I think, a curious kid, as were my brothers. Were you happy? Yeah, I had a, I, I was a loving, happy family with a wide range of experiences. I you know, a highlight of my childhood was the year we spent in your native land, England, living in London, when my father was on sabbatical. 
at the London School of Economics. But I had a whole range of experiences. On the one hand, I was probably a bit of a quirky intellectual kid. On the other hand, I loved sports and played whatever the whatever the sport of the season was with the other kids. And I had I was very, very fortunate that I had a gym teacher in second grade who told my parents observed what my parents had already observed that I was probably better at solving math problems than I was at running fast or leaping high and suggested that my parents encourage me to learn to play tennis because I was more likely to be successful in that pursuit than I was in a range of team sports. And it would serve me much better through the whole of my life. And that proved to be very good. But I spent lots of hours as a kid hitting a tennis ball against the backboard because in addition to having a curious streak, I guess I had a fairly competitive streak. Yeah. And tennis brings out that one-on-one -on -one competition. Exactly. And... I like singles better than doubles. <laughs> so a nerd who occasionally, who actually preferred to play alone, which sounds like definitely an interesting for, forerunner for the rest of your career. And of course, you then became this prodigy. You, you burst until you were, you went through academics, you went until you became at 28 years old, a Harvard professor, one of the, I think the youngest ever tenured Harvard professor at 28? Certainly in that era, I think I was, I probably, I probably was the youngest. I was fortunate to have a remarkable thesis advisor in Marty Feldstein. Oh, wow. Uh, late Martin, the late Martin Feldstein. I was completely turned on to the fact that you could apply the scientific method that I believe very deeply in and the kind of quantitative analysis that I love doing to really important problems that made a difference in a large number of people's lives. So I was hooked on economics. And in those years, I was working, you know, kind of on the Chinese schedule, nine, nine, six, nine to nine, six days a week, only it was probably more like 12, 12, six or 12, three, six, as in 3 a.m. And I was able to do a substantial amount of research and was very excited when, while I was teaching at MIT, I was invited to come back to Harvard, where I had been a graduate student as a professor. Of course, one of the lucky things about being in an environment uh, like that is that I had the privilege of advising and teaching many, many extraordinary students who, from whom I was able to learn a great deal, who were able to keep, help me in a lot of the research that I was doing and some of whom I've kept up with to this day. But then something happened to you. You, you were diagnosed early with a, a really rough kind of cancer. Tell me, tell me how you found out that news. In the fall of 1983, I was 
busy teaching and writing and doing all the things that I was doing. And I had a cough and the cough persisted and the cough became a fever and the fever persisted. And I went to the university health service where they said, we may have bronchitis and they looked around and frankly, university health services act on the presumption that almost everybody's healthy because almost everybody in their population is healthy. And I was a kind of cocky, confident young single man. So I wasn't particularly stressed about taking care of myself, but I got sicker and sicker. And eventually I went to see a doctor at Brigham, one of the major teaching hospitals in Boston, who had me take some, take a variety of tests. This was just before the Christmas holiday, but I was pretty calm about it all. I didn't realize I had a, any kind of big problem. And I went out to the American Economic Association meetings and really felt sick and called my brother and said, I'm flying back, but I'm really sick. I may need to go to a hospital or something when I get back. And I sort of flailed through the airport managed to convince them to let me get on the plane, even though I must've looked horrible. And I, it was, I stayed home for three days. And then just after the new year, I went to see a doctor who basically said, you're not going home. You're going into the, you're going into the hospital. And then there was a, a process of diagnosis. And I was diagnosed as having a very late stage of Hodgkin's disease and went, was in the hospital for, for a few days, embarked on a regimen of chemotherapy that was very unpleasant, but not devastating in the way that some regimens of chemotherapy are. And I was lucky. I went into remission after several months and it's been almost 40 years and there has been no, no recurrence of, of any, of any kind. Did that, did that experience change you in some way? I mean, there you were really master of the universe and suddenly stricken low. Was there, was that an opportunity to reflect on your life a little bit or, or, or did you have anything, but I'm going to get through this mentality to it. You're 28. You've been told you have a late stage cancer. It is hard for me to remember as remember myself as I was before that in distinction from how I was after that, Andrew. But I think that at the time, my view was that what I could do best was persevere in doing the work that was hugely important to me. And so I happened to live in an apartment near the, near the Harvard campus. And 
all the students who I were advising, they'd be, they'd be lined up to come to that apartment every 45, every 45 minutes. And I kept writing my papers and doing what I, doing what I did. And if you looked at my list of publications, you wouldn't be able to tell when I had been ill. And I was kind of proud of that as a way of persevering through the experience. I think it gave me a sense that I'd never had before, that life was not forever, and that whatever you wanted to do, you should do, because you never knew what tomorrow was going to bring. And so I was probably a man in a hurry a bit before, and I was not less in a hurry in a, in a hurry afterwards. It gave me a sense of the absolute importance of health, of healthcare as a prerequisite to everything else. It's the reason why, while my primary preoccupation is macroeconomics, when I was at the World Bank, I guided the bank towards writing a major report on global health, which helped to get Bill Gates interested in the subject, and why, in a variety of other contexts, I have always been focused on healthcare, yeah, healthcare issues, because when that's wrong, almost nothing else, almost, almost nothing else matters. But I, I, I suspect people deal with these kinds of things in different ways. Some people's whole direction is change towards a more philosophical and spiritual sort of vision of the world. And some people double down a bit on being themselves. And I was probably more in the category of doubling down on being myself. And being yourself, as you, as you referred to, as, as you talked about your childhood, was being both a nerd, in other words, interested in math, things that you could really control, but also interested in public life, in the questions of the day. And you could have just been a super economist, but you, you did dive into politics. You, you went after the Dukakis campaign. Why, why, why are you not satisfied? Here's a good question. With just looking at numbers, creating models, testing them against reality, and continuing to do that work, as opposed to also wanting to actually be involved in the messy human compromising world of, of politics? I don't know the answer to, to, that, to that question, Andrew. I, I suspect it really had to do with some feeling that if you were gonna do research on tax policy, for example, you should wanna actually influence tax policy. If you're gonna, <laughs> do research on black holes was enough to observe black holes and understand black holes. But what really was the point of doing research on tax policy or doing research on the way financial markets worked 
if you weren't going to try to contribute to making them better. So I always had a desire to, to influence the world in relatively direct, relatively direct ways. I had gotten enormous satisfaction when I was in college in being on the debate team and being one of the leaders, one of the leading few debaters in the country. And so that kind of, that had caused me to have a sort of passion for advocacy and the domain in which you advocated on the issues that I knew the most about was the political process. And through a friend who had been a student of mine when I'd been a graduate student and who I had helped out a fair amount when he was an undergraduate, I was asked if I was willing to sort of help the Dukakis campaign in its early stages. And I just found observing the whole fascinating. I approached it with almost total naivete. I remember they told me that, you know, my work would be associated with the issues departments of the campaign and that there were 12 departments of the campaign of which issues was one. And I didn't initially understand why there was a need for any other departments other than issues, since I thought the whole thing would be about issues. But I tried to work very hard at understanding this new and different world that I was, that I was in. And I think Rather to my surprise, and I suspect rather to their surprise, I took to, I sort of was able to figure out the game a bit. I mean, everybody was kind of happy to give the candidate a briefing on the budget issues facing the country. The candidate and his staff needed briefings on the budget issues facing the country less then they needed a system where whenever the candidate went anywhere, which was two different places every day, a briefing on the major issues facing the local economy. And I got a couple students and we figured out, and this was before the internet, so it was harder then than it would be now. And we figured out a system. So, you know, you're going to Wichita, Kansas, you know, the three biggest industries in Wichita are the most important two business leaders in Wichita are the the arguments about Wichita economic policy are, and, you know, we produced a system so that that automatically arrived. Well, you know, the candidate staff thought that was much more, much more useful than a lot of the other professors who were sending them 50-page papers that they thought the candidate should, should read. So it wasn't a very successful presidential campaign and it ultimately Let's put, it, let's put it mildly. Uh, but it was it was an immensely educational and satisfying experience for me where I met many people, Lloyd Benson, Bob, Bob, Bob Rubin, who subsequently I worked, I worked very closely with. And I, you know, I have every time I've had a chance to do something significant in public policy. I've sent a note to Senator, to Governor Dukakis, 
thanking him for the opportunity that he provided me. And at this time in American politics, obviously there is a huge revival of free market economics, of Friedman, you have Reagan, you have Bush, and then you have Clinton and this period in which the left is attempting to grapple with what lessons might be learned economically from the 70s, what has the right gotten right, and where are they still wrong, and this deeply pragmatic understanding that the left must understand markets better, must understand macroeconomics a little bit better than they did the 60s and 70s. And also to, to be crude about it, you were one of the architects of what we might call a neoliberal order, especially, let's say, in terms of trade. You were a very strong proponent of NAFTA bringing China into the WTO, this huge pro-trade, pro-free trade movement in the 90s, which, with which I was also extremely, for which I was extremely supportive. Do you look back at that now and think the, th that was an error that when, especially one looks at China, for example, in terms of its growth and also in terms of the impact on the working classes in the West, which seems to have really affected them profoundly enough for them to move away from the center to more radical voices? Andrew, let me, let me say something. Let me say first that on any given issue, I may be right or I may be wrong. I'll argue my, argue what I believe and read the evidence as best I can. But I think that it is a mistake to demonize difference and to suggest that people who don't agree with the most left-wing views have those views because they don't care. I believe that I am as concerned with helping the poor, with raising the living standards of average Americans, with enabling opportunity as anyone else in our country. And so I think that it is badly wrong. And I actually think it's one test of how good an argument one has. If one can argue the substance of the other person's argument, seems to me it's much better than if one's in the position of impugning motive. And so when I, if I feel an urge to impugn motive, it causes me to doubt myself and that I can't think of anything better to do than to impugn motive. With respect to trade, I think broadly, we were right in the 1970s. If you imagine a world in which NAFTA had not passed, you would have a world in which the pressures on our border coming from an impoverished Mexico would be far greater. They are with all of the potential disruptions that that would mean to our economy. You would have a world in which the United States would compete much less effectively with other regions. That in a world where French and German firms 
were well integrated with lower price labor from Portugal or Poland in a world where Japanese firms were well integrated with lower cost labor from Indonesia or Thailand. If the United States were to wall itself off from being mutually engaged with any source of low cost labor, I think we'd be less competitive and there'd be less opportunity for American workers. So I was proud to have been part of the effort advocating NAFTA. I think with respect to China, the prevailing view is actually hard to understand. The United States, beginning sometime in the 1980s, accorded China what was called MFN, Most Favored Nation. That is, all Chinese trade with the United States received the same benefits that we had granted to the rest of the world in, in the various GATT trade agreements. Bill Clinton threatened to take that away in the early 1990s over human rights issues. The whole thing was not a viable policy as the Clinton administration soon recognized. When you had the leading human rights advocates in Hong Kong and Taiwan and the leading Chinese dissidents saying, please, please don't do this, it was not a tenable strategy. And so the US agreed to continue China's MFN as it had since the early 1980s. What that meant was that we had made a decision as a country in the 1980s that China was going to be able to export goods to the United States on the same terms that France was. We considered reversing that strategy and found it not to be tenable. Under those circumstances, the question was, should we get them to do things that would cause them to accept more exports by having a negotiation about their joining the WTO, or should we not do that? That wasn't a decision to let more Chinese products into our country. That was a decision to get more American products into their country. I think it was the right thing to have done. I think the American economy is stronger because of the airplanes, because of the services, because of the automobiles that we have sold to China. There were some who said that this was some kind of panacea and that China was going to become a warm and cuddly democracy. That was naive when it was said and was wrong and represented a kind of overselling. But if you say, are we better off in a world where we have lower priced products because they're being produced efficiently all over the world? 
absolutely, I think we are better off. Are we better off for the fact that we were able to have lower, lower prices of a large number of goods? I think that we were better off. And frankly, Andrew, it's not it's not you and I who are the principal beneficiaries of the fact that there were lower priced goods at Walmart or Target. It's Americans who are closer to the center of the income distribution than, than, you, than you or I are. So should, should, we have, should we have invested more? Should we have paid more attention to the regions of our country that were struggling and is there, should there have been, and should there still be more of a role for place-based policies in the United States? Absolutely, there should be. Are there more, is it a crime that we do not invest in a more satisfactory way in our country in the preparation for life of the two-thirds of Americans who are not going to get college degrees? It is a crime. Is it wrong that a local-based education system causes the people who pay the lowest, lowest tax rates to have the best schools because they're wealthy people living together? Yes, that is a very wrong thing. But I think to try to blame the problems on trade is to pursue a course that would ultimately make us poorer. The biggest strategic gift we have given China in the last half dozen years is to have led the Pacific countries towards a collective trade agreement, the so-called Trade Pacific Partnership, to have led them all to do it, and then to have welched on the deal ourselves as a country. Nothing could have sent a stronger signal that they need to hedge their bets between the United States and China than making that mistake. So there's a lot of other things we need to do. The, the problem is not what we did do in terms of liberalizing trade. The problem is what we did not do in terms of supporting disadvantaged Americans. And some of that is probably the Clinton administration's fault. More of that, frankly, is the Congress that you were working with at the time. Right. The, 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 what, but what can be done? I mean, if, if manufacturing is becoming increasingly automated in, 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 and, if, and if people abroad can do things more quickly, what? What can we do for the for, for working class Americans without college degrees that could actually make a difference? And when people say education, well, I'm not sure that works. There's a limit to what education can provide, but the ability to just use your body to actually create and make things is, uh, is, is something that gives value to people. And it seems to me that a lot of people feel that their, their work is not something of value to them anymore. They're not making something. They don't feel a part of something. They feel they feel as if they're just simply part of this global economy. And that itself is a problem politically because it will lead to resistance to trade. It will lead to things like Brexit. It will lead to things like the emergence of Donald Trump. And I just 
if someone could tell me what we could actually do to improve the prospects of the people we're talking about, I might be more less worried, but I, I honestly don't see what there is to do with that group of society, how we can bet what policies are best for them. Let me suggest a few, and then let me put this, uh, put it in a sort of broader, broader context, if I could, Andrew. We have a housing affordability crisis in the United States that is bearing down most heavily on young people who didn't get on the es who didn't get on the escalator. The only answer to that is more supply of housing, which means building more housing. The kinds of skills that are involved in manufacturing work and in the construction of housing are quite parallel kinds of skills. We should be building a third more housing in this country than we are. Some of that is about the availability of finance. More of it is about crazy zoning rules that don't let housing be built in all kinds of places where people uh, want to live. So part of your answer is construction. So construction in, of housing first. Second, the construction of infrastructure. I started flying back and forth frequently between Boston and Washington as a young professor in the late 1970s. It took an hour and a quarter then. Now it takes an hour and 45 minutes. Plane technology hasn't gotten worse. Neither Logan Airport nor National Airport has moved. That is all about congestion. And that is all about an air traffic control system that is basically not just of the 20th century rather than the 21st, but is of the third quarter of the 21st century, not the fourth quarter of the 21st century. There is a ton we can do with infrastructure investment, which again is work in building. And build, there is a ton in America that needs to be built. There's the third thing, which is there is an enormous amount of work to be done in America that is hugely important, but that might not have a profitable model. All over, all over the world, all over America, middle schools that used to have sports don't any longer because people can't afford them. There are all kinds of people who'd be delighted to coach those teams, who'd be delighted to equip those teams, but there's not a profitable business model through which we can do it. So we need, the left is right, that we need to be prepared to accept a larger government. Here's a key fact for sort of understanding our economy. If you look, Andrew, at the consumer price index for different goods, they're all set at 100 in 1983. The consumer price index for a television set is today at four, it's gone from 100 to four. 
The consumer price index for a day in a hospital room or a year in a college is at 600. We've had this huge change in the relative cost, but we haven't really adjusted the relative spending. And that's why we are a society that abounds in television sets and doesn't have the quality of health and education services and the kind of provision that we need. But wouldn't someone say, well, why are those things so expensive? Colleges were far more expensive than it needs to be, that that, that some of these things are bound up with government regulation, with 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 a function of, of of a captive to various industries that are bilking you, like the hospitals that are charging you through the roof. And you can't see greater efficiencies going on there. You have layers and layers of bureaucracy. You have layers now of diversity people. You have you have a huge apparatus, certainly in higher education, that is not in any way devoted to actually teaching kids. That seems to be devoted to a variety of other objectives. Isn't that part of the problem too? The market will discipline televisions. It won't necessarily discipline healthcare. So I think the two. I think the two parts. Two parts of this. I think you are. You are right. God knows. Is it really necessary or really a good idea that Harvard, like other universities? has more professors over 70 than under 50, that nobody can be asked to retire, that the median age of the senior faculty is 59. And yes, there are legions of bureaucrats doing all kinds of things in most universities that I don't think need to be done. Some of them pushed by internal imperatives, some of them forced by government, yes. Would more competition be good? Absolute yes. All of that said, you're not going to have Moore's Law for education in the way that you're going to have Moore's Law for the creation of television sets. You're going to find in healthcare all kinds of new things you can do. We didn't, the things we know how to test for now that we didn't know how to test for. There are procedures that we can do now that we didn't know how to do before. So the challenge, which in a way gets beyond the old debates about should we have the market or should we not have the market, is that a much larger fraction of our economy isn't the basic production of widgets that is the stuff of economics textbooks. It's stuff like health and education or it's stuff like social media platforms that we have to think about in different ways than the old debates about the competitive model. But there is plenty of work to do. And if what we try to do is preserve the old, the old work, we will simply become uncompetitive. We ultimately won't serve the, the, old, the old work and will have much worse outcomes. So I think we need strategies that are about embracing the future, but 
there is just as people worry when 50% of the people on the were on the farms that if we didn't have, if, if agriculture got more productive, there'd be nothing for everybody to do. And there turned out to be plenty of things for people to do, albeit with enormously painful adjustments. The same thing is true with respect to many with respect to manufacturing work. You know, there's a story from Milton Friedman that always made an impression on me. Milton Friedman, I think it was in Israel, I'm not sure which country he was visiting, but the country was having a bit of a recession and there was a highway project and there were people who were working on the project with shovels and they were explaining how they were using shovels rather than bulldozers because that way it was more labor intensive and would create more jobs. And Milton Friedman listened and he said, that's very interesting. Why don't you replace the shovels with teaspoons? And then you could employ even a larger number of people. And it was, I think, a good way of making the point that embracing inefficiency is a pretty problematic strategy for economic success, whether the inefficiency is not making use of technology or the inefficiency is not making use of cheaper inputs that are available from abroad. But God knows that is not an argument for doing nothing or not an argument for not caring. It's an argument for figuring out what the right and smartest things for us to do are. And there, there's truth in both the left and the right. The left is right. We need to spend vastly more money on infrastructure and that we have only scratched the surface of the different kinds of infrastructure investment we need to make. But the right is right that we need to do it quickly and efficiently. Andrew, I'll bet you've crossed the bridge between Cambridge and Austin, between Harvard Square and Boston on many occasions. That bridge is 362 feet long. It needed to be renovated after a century. One lane of traffic on that bridge during its renovation was closed for 62 months. To put that in some perspective, Patton created a whole new bridge over the Rhine 10 times as long in one day. And you learn things from, your, from being at a university with the classics department. Julius Caesar spanned a 3,000, not 300 foot, a 3,000 foot stretch of the Rhine in nine days. And in contemporary America, it was a 62 month project. And so we need to figure out how to speed this up and make it more efficient at the same time that we figure out how to invest more heavily into it. But if we don't make it more efficient, we're going to be making a big mistake. If we don't put money in it. But Larry, how do you, how do you make, I mean, the, the building industry, the construction industry, the way in which infrastructure is built, 
I'm just staggered. I, I've lived here now for 30 years during the Amtrak and the train service is not much better than it was 30 years ago. That the, the, there seems to be just incapacity. Is it, is it, too, is it unions? Is it, is it regulation? Is it environmental controls? Is it NIMBYism? Is it all of the above? All of the above. Okay. Well, all of, all, of, all of the above. You know, President Clinton and Vice President Gore, when I was in government, launched this thing which Vice President Gore led called RIGO, Reinventing Government. And I think at the time people saw it as sort of gimmicky and all that, but I've come to think that that is hugely important and that we have a kind of unfortunate dynamic where government disappoints people and so we make even bigger promises the next time, and then we fall even further short, and it's kind of a vicious cycle. And what we need to do instead is do somewhat less and do it better. And that that's the way we need to restore more confidence in our public institutions. But if we pursue a strategy of purchasing domestic consensus at the price of just blaming foreigners for all our problems, which is what a lot of the new protectionism is, is about, that's going to be a strategy that isn't going to solve our problems because it's not diagnosing them accurately, and it is going to create a set of toxic consequences in our relations with the rest of the world. Let me put you a layman's rough view of the last 15 years, say, which is that we hit this awful recession in 2008 as it was a financially induced recession. We didn't spend enough to get out of that recession. And now when we hit the pandemic, we spent too much. If only we had reversed those decisions, if only the decision we made in 2021 had been the decision we made in 2009, 10, then maybe it would have all worked out, but we actually got those decisions wrong both times. I think that's about, I think that's about right. I think that to, to quantify it relative to the size of the gap that had to be filled, we spent about five times as much in 2020, 2021, as we did in 2008. Wow. And we probably should have spent twice as much in 2008, nine, and we probably should have spent half as much in, in 2020. You know, so you see was, why people, 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 people are skeptical of macroeconomists. Yeah, well, but it was, but, it, but in fairness, in, in, in fairness, I think in 2008, it was much more, I was there. It was the politics. I remember saying several times to President Obama and to others who said, you know, how much, what's the right amount to spend here? And I said, you know, that's like asking how much weight I should lose. I suppose <laughs> it's possible that I'll lose too much and become anorexic but that's a pretty remote risk starting from where I am. And 
So the right answer is as much as possible. And the right answer then was we should get as much fiscal stimulus as we could consistent with the political process and the fact that we needed to get it quickly. That was the right view then. And there were a whole set of discussions about so-called secular, secular stagnation. Afterwards, the economy was understimulated, not just right after the financial crisis, but for some years afterwards through till the COVID moment. But then it was amazing to me, we got to early 2021, COVID was starting to recede. The estimate was that if you looked at how much payrolls were depressed, payrolls were depressed by about $30 billion a month. And that number was coming down. And we decided as a country to spend between 150 and $200 billion a month in what we injected into the economy. And it was pretty predictable that that would lead to inflation. And it did. And, you know, it didn't, it didn't have to lead. It, it, it could have been better or worse. It's not that we knew when we started on the experiment exactly what was going to happen on the supply side of the economy. But given that you were putting $150 billion in to an economy that was only $30 billion short, even if everything worked great on the supply side, you were going to have a problem. And it was sort of predictable that even if you didn't know what would go wrong, that some things would go wrong on the supply side. And that's why we overheated the economy as badly as we did. And the political lesson is that when you start seeing rapid inflation, it in its early stages, the prices always go up faster than the wages, that it affects everybody because they feel like they're having more trouble making uh, ends uh, meet. And it conveys a sense of a society out of control. And that's very scary to people. So I think that was a consequential blunder that, as you say, was the mirror image of what we regret. And look, it's something we all do, and it's something the policy process does. I mean, I've heard myself say in various contexts, let's at least make a new mistake. Let's not make the same mistake that we did last time. And it's a natural human urge. I was pretty close to the process in 2021, and it wasn't that macroeconomic analysts reached the wrong conclusion. It was that there were a whole set of political imperatives that wanted to spend a lot. And macroeconomic analysis in general didn't flash the caution flag with sufficient energy. And so people went ahead. It wasn't that anybody really looked at things systematically and decided that the right thing to do was to pass a $900 billion bill and then pass a $1.9 trillion bill. It was that people wanted to pass all those bills and people convinced themselves that it would work out okay and it hasn't worked out so okay. Yeah. Why? 
why the, is that the same story for inflation in Western Europe, for example, that they too overstimulated? People were very concerned, of course, that an epidemic like that would have led to some awful recession or to some collapse in demand and also great poverty and hardship. But in retrospect, is that because the argument to say that, no, this wasn't really overspending, it was, uh, it was, it was, it's a function of supply chain shocks. Now, increasingly, also partly a function of the Russia-Ukraine war, which has driven up oil prices. So the, the evidence they use for that is to say, well, look at Europe, it's the same position as the United States. So, so what is your argument to counter that? that? That is the, that's exactly the, the right question to ask. And that's the talking point that the authors of some of this use to defend themselves. I'd make several responses. First, some of this definitely is supply. We're not inherently a 9% inflation country because of overheating, but we're pretty far removed from being a 2% inflation country because of overheating. So maybe five, maybe we'd be a 5% inflation country without the supply side elements. And 5% was higher than the inflation rate was when Richard Nixon imposed wage price controls. So people see that as a pretty serious problem. So I don't want to say that at all that there aren't very important supply elements. Second, we exported a fair amount of inflation. Because demand was so high in the United States, that created bottlenecks in global industries that then raised prices everywhere. And it also led to a major increase in the value of the dollar, which tended to suppress our inflation by making imports cheap, and a major decline in the value of the euro, which made European inflation higher. So to a significant extent, we were the global drivers of the inflation, just as we were during the Vietnam War period, which I was using as an analogy at the time. Third, if you look at the inflation, it has a rather different pattern. We are energy independent. So increases in energy prices don't have nearly the same impact on our overall price level that and our real income level that they do in Europe. And while the world oil market is interconnected, the world natural gas market is not. And prices of natural gas in Europe are almost seven times as high as they are in the United States. If you look at what's a better measure of inflation, core inflation, that takes out the extremes of commodities, or you look at what's happening to wage inflation, they are much greater in the United States than they are in Europe. Core inflation is much lower in Europe. And I guess the last thing I'd say is it's not that Europe hasn't had a certain amount of overstimulus as well. They did do significantly less on the fiscal side, but it's only in the last two weeks that Europe stopped having substantially negative interest rates and printing money in the kind of way that's necessary to have negative, to have negative interest rates. So yeah, there's a more nuanced and complicated story to tell about 
what's happening in a range of different countries and to understand why Japan isn't having substantial inflation at all. In some ways, we'd rather get its inflation rate up. But I think it's a, I think it's an oversimplification to say that inflation is everywhere. Therefore, we, we didn't make important policy mistakes. You know, we've now had a lot of years to study the lessons of the 1960s and 1970s, and inflation was everywhere. But I don't think anybody's trying to defend the Carter administration's economic policies or Richard Nixon's wage price controls by saying by saying that. Right. So given that and given the need now for the Fed to squeeze this out, especially since it's reached a very a, a terrifyingly high number so quickly, are we... Are we going to go into a recession? Is is the story of the Biden administration, massive overspending, massive inflation, recession? Because that looks like it, at least from this end, which has huge political and economic consequences. What are the odds of us not tipping into recession in the next six to 12 months? I think the odds are three and four that we will have a recession within the next two years. I Out think that, what's that? Three or four out of 10? No, no, three out of four. 75, oh, okay. 75, 75%. I think that because if you study economic history, what you learn is that the idea of a soft landing is a triumph of hope over experience. That we essentially don't have soft landings from high rates of inflation and low rates of unemployment. And I think increasingly, if you look at markets, what markets are pricing in is a significant chance, is a really quite significant chance that there will be a recession. The market is now judging that interest rates are likely to fall between 2023 and 2024 in a quite significant way, which is a sign that the markets are expecting that there will that there'll be a a recession. And I think it's historically we just haven't brought down substantial rates of inflation without a recession. We've got an economy right now where there are twice as many vacancies as there are unemployed people. Well, that's not an economy that's gonna likely to see substantial wage restraint. Now I could be my best guess. There's a reason I said 75%, not 95%. It could be, as Paul Krugman would, would argue, that expectations aren't really yet that high of inflation and that this will just sort of fade away and that the economy will have a gentle glide path to slower growth without a major increase in unemployment. I'm not saying that that's for sure not going to happen, but it seems to me that that's a much less frequent pattern in the United States and other countries than is the alternative. I think if we are able to reduce pharmaceutical prices, reduce tariffs that would bring down 
some consumer prices, do some things to raise taxes more than we raise spending. If we're able to do some of those things, I think we can make the Fed's job easier and raise the prospect of a soft of a of a soft landing but i do think this is a difficult problem of management and i also think that it'd be a mistake to think that this is all about the skill of management nobody knows what's going to happen to commodity and oil prices the oil forward market is saying that oil prices will decline quite substantially, perhaps by $15 or $20 over the next year. If you listen to most energy experts, they have a parade of horrible scenarios. There could be a disruption here. There could be a disruption there. If there is a disruption, the price of oil will spike. And so you'd have a much more pessimistic view. Obviously, our prospects of a soft landing are much greater in a geopolitically benign world than in a geopolitically malign world. What were the odds that Joe Biden would turn out to be more left-wing than Barack Obama? I think that anybody, any president is a creature of their times. And there was a so much anger over the Trump administration. And there was such a sense of emergency around the pandemic that it led to this very strong movement towards the left. If you contrasted the 2020 presidential campaign with the 2016 presidential campaign, 2008 presidential campaign, the center of gravity in the Democratic Party had shifted very substantially left. You know, on some issues like the fact that the country needs much more infrastructure spending, I think that was correct and appropriate. On other issues like the idea that we should enact Medicare for all, I think it was quite misguided. But I think it's important to, in understanding this, not just to engage in psychological analysis of Barack Obama or Joe Biden, which I'll leave to others, but the general context in which the Democratic primaries took place have had moved substantially left. And I think that would lead one to perhaps expect some change in the policy aspirations that were put forward. In retrospect, I would have preferred a more centrist approach. When you, Trump had this effect. I mean, this is kind of interesting because Trump in some ways moved in a different place politically, but left the center empty. But the Democrats, partly psychologically responding to him, moved left, leaving this empty, moderate center, which had been really since, I mean, Clinton first figured this out, that's where the Democrats needed to be if they were going to succeed. It's a paradox, isn't it? That in some ways, 
the reaction to Trump became as polarizing as Trump himself, that it set off a dynamic of mutual polarization, mutual extremism. That's very hard I to have, unwind. I, I have, you know, I'm, I don't know whether I'm an I don't know whether I'm an expert on economics or not, but I, Andrew, but I'm certainly not an expert on politics. And I used to remind my colleagues on my staff at the National Economic Council, who were when we were discussing what the different political angles were, I would sometimes say, you know, last time I checked, Barack Obama got 360 electoral, more electoral votes than we did. So I think our job here is going to be to tee up the economics and let him make the political decisions. But there's a reason the phrase Trump derangement syndrome got coined. And it's about something very real that you were describing. I think one of the reasons why Bill Clinton was so decisively reelected was that he responded to what happened to him in 1994 by moving strongly towards the center. And then when the center wasn't good enough for his Republican opponents, they looked like they were lunatics. And that's why I think it's important to try to seize the center ground. I am, go out of my area for just a second, you know, I am as strongly as anyone on the Roe v. Wade as it stood rather than it was reversed side. But I wonder whether the right approach isn't to say, okay, we've done this. Shouldn't we now make sure that there are funds available in the form of credits for any child who is born into poverty? Shouldn't we make absolutely sure that there's contraception readily available for any woman who needs it, including various versions of the morning after pill? That, and then let them either say yes and do good or say no and get to a very extreme place, that seems to me a much better strategy than trying to legislate absolutist, very far-reaching abortion protections that go beyond the protections that are available in the vast majority of European countries. And I think you can take that kind of approach to many different issues where you sort of seize the centrist high ground, and then you either get things done by consensus, or you isolate your opponent's as being extreme, whereas when you say they've polarized, so will polarize, you invite a plague on both your houses kind of approach, which is really quite unhealthy for the country. And 
doesn't necessarily set up victory. So I think getting caught trying to be constructive and doing practical things rather than raging is the right kind of approach. I mean, God, at a time when the fraction of kids who can read at grade level in our inner cities and many of the disadvantaged parts of our country is below 50%. Is critical race theory really the right thing to be fighting? I mean, we're fighting to keep, you know, people fight to keep it in curricula for kids who won't be able to read it anyway, because they haven't really mastered basic reading skills. So I think that what we try, what we need to be doing is trying to seize the moral high ground on a lot of these issues. You were a pioneer of many things, but in some ways you were also a pioneer of being canceled, to use the contemporary term, because you mused out loud about statistics that no one really disputes that are actually true in terms of the distribution on a bell curve of various attributes. Now, I don't for a minute think, I mean, there are all sorts of, you could make all sorts of arguments about it, but on the actual facts themselves, you weren't wrong, but you were, you were, you were canceled in, in so many ways. How do you feel about the atmosphere of, on college campuses today? I mean, you ran Harvard for quite a while. What's it like now? Do you feel that freedom of speech of discourse is, 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 is being constrained in ways that, that worry you about the possibility of really good open debate in those places? Andrew, I'm, I think it's fair to say, I think what is, I, I, I'm very sympathetic to a lot in what you just said. I think to be fair to my critics, whatever it was I did or did not say, there were headlines that appeared afterwards in a lot of places that said Harvard president believes girls are dumb. And that's not what the Harvard president believed, but it's not in Harvard's interest for those headlines to appear. And the job of the Harvard president is to project Harvard in a, favor in a favorable light. So I don't regard myself as blameless in everything that happened. That said, I think that cancel culture and that there is a degree of intolerance of challenging viewpoints on college campuses that is entirely inimical to the basic purposes that universities are supposed to serve. There was a poll in the Harvard student newspaper and, you know, the poll probably didn't probably the whole, the poll probably wouldn't meet every standard of the Gallup organization. Nonetheless, they did a poll of the Harvard arts and sciences faculty and close to half of them asserted that no one who had worked in Donald Trump's administration should be eligible for appointments as a member of the faculty. Now, the idea that there should be a litmus test 
in terms of what political administration you would work for as to whether you should be permitted to join a faculty rather than an evaluation of your scholarly work and your ability to contribute to students is absolutely scandalous with respect to any idea of academic freedom. And I don't think that is atypical of the culture that exists in many different universities and university departments. The, the same poll asked people to characterize themselves as very liberal, liberal, moderate, conservative, or very conservative. Precisely zero people categorize themselves as very conservative. And 1% characterize themselves as conservative. And only 17% characterize themselves as moderate. I think that's problematic for students' ability to be exposed to a wide range of figures. And so, yes, I think that this is a very serious problem. I think it's a very difficult problem because not all of it, and maybe not even most of it, has to do with the things I just referred to, who gets appointed to the faculty, who gets appointed to give, to give lectures, all those things there could be improved very substantially, but people just learn there's certain things they're not supposed to talk about. There are certain subjects, there are certain arguments they're not supposed to make. I, I teach a class on American economic policy, and we talk about all aspects of American economic policy. And I said to the professor I co-teach the class with, we should have section, we should have a one class out of 25 on racial issues and racial and gender diversity, wage differences, fairness, justice, the economics of that set of issues. Well, we decided that we would do that. But if I asked advice from 20 professors at Harvard, 15 of them would advise me not to do it. Or if I was going to do it, I had to come at it from a perspective that emphasized entirely the gravity of the problem and the extent of the discrimination rather than issues that raise challenges with respect to some of the more conventional diagnoses. So I think it is a, it is a quite serious problem given that I do think ultimately Keynes was right about the power of ideas. And universities are the sources of many of the ideas that subsequently trace policy over long periods of, of time. I think 
I think, for example, of a scholar at Harvard who I admired very much, Sam Huntington, whose book, The Clash of Civilizations, may be anathema on many American college campuses, but is closely studied by many foreign ministries in Asia and the Middle East. It's hard to believe that we serve our national interests by not exposing our young international relations scholars those kinds of ideas. So I it's also remember, true that I remember, let me say, let me say one oh. last thing. I remember reading, it made a big impression on me when I read it many years ago, how one of the reasons why the United States, according to David Halberstam in The Best and the Brightest, one of the reasons why the United States made all the mistakes it made in Vietnam was all the many of the Asian experts who would have seen it all coming had been canceled in one way or another or inhibited by McCarthyism. And it seems to me in a whole range of social policy areas, international policy areas, we are setting ourselves up for the same kinds of mistakes by establishing an orthodoxy. Orthodoxies, if they're going to survive, also have got to be tested. Without testing, you'll never find out if they're true or not. And then they can become zombie truths that you still believe in. I want to finish with, because uh, thank you so much for your time, where we are. You're in Truro right now. I'm in Provincetown, the strange little part of the Outer Cape, which has, I mean, Truro, I just read this book, Shores of Bohemia. I reviewed it for the Times. So many of the thinkers and intellectuals, writers, painters, artists, architects, come to this weird little spigot of land. What, if, what draws you here? Where did you first come here? I, I first came when my parents brought me here as an 11-year-old, and I have been here almost every, I think, every summer since that time. The house from which I'm speaking to you was a house that my parents built about 30 years ago, and that I bought from them about 10 years ago. And I have loved the beauty of this area, the water views, the set of people that I get a chance to meet. Now, I'm in Truro rather than in Provincetown, but I have to record for better or for worse that life seems rather more staid in my Cape Cod life than that described in the shores of Bohemia. It's, a, it's an interesting commentary on something that I think the coming of the national seashore, which I regarded as a great progressive accomplishment, preserving this area of beauty and all of that, was probably a contributor to the, this area receding from what it was in the 40, in the 30s, 40s, and 50s as a huge gathering place of intellectual communities. Housing, be, housing became more expensive. 
nude beaches became patrolled a bit more close, a bit more closely out of existence. So it's an example of the fact that things have perverse and surprising effects. But I think this is a very special part of our country. And to think you could look out from my porch and see where the pilgrims landed is really quite something. Can you see Provincetown from your house? I can see Provincetown. I can see the tip of Provincetown curling around. And as I um, sit here, I can I can look out house. and see Truro, actually. You can see it. Oh, ah, well, there we go. Well, we could wave across the bay. Yes. Larry, this has been a huge pleasure. Thank you so much for talking about some tough stuff, some interesting stuff. I hope that you're wrong about a recession, but obviously I'm, I'm interested. I'm, I'm frustrated, to be honest with you, that you weren't part of the discussions that Biden was having before he launched this massively independent thing. And, and friend, a friend of mine said the entire problems for the Biden administration comes from the fact that the group of them inside couldn't stand Larry Summers. And that, that's entirely the reason for our current situation. I don't want to flatter you too much, but they don't, they don't like you, do they? The, 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 the... I've got many, you know, I've got many friends in the administration and we've maintained an open and, you know, open, direct and private dialogue and Try but you're the outside. Try to, under, try to understand each other's perspectives. Look, this is not about being right. This is about wanting to get as good economic outcomes for people as possible. I went into part of, I mean, I suppose I was influenced by my family, but I remember it occurred to me some point when I was in high school that doctors treat patients one patient at a time. But if an economist through his research or through whatever he advocates, she advocates, can make the unemployment rate be one-tenth of a percent lower for one month. That's 150,000 people whose kids see them going off to work rather than being unhappily idle. And 150,000 is a very big number, and that's one-tenth of one percent on the unemployment rate for one month. So I think these debates about economic policy are immensely important. That's why I think you have to try to be as open-minded as possible, state things probabilistically, and make, make the best arguments you can and consider, always consider that you might be wrong or that the situation might change. And you might need to adjust your view. And I guess I also think that Keynes had sort of an unpleasant thing to say, but Keynes had a very powerful point when he said words should be a little bit wild because they can be the assault of thought on the unthinking. And so I think it's not the right thing to do to try to state things as tactfully as possible if that conflicts with stating them clearly. Well, that is a life philosophy to live by. I feel exactly the same way, I think. But at the same time, if you are, if that's your conviction, you will, you'll take a few hits. You won't be necessarily welcome in every circle and, and that's fine. 
that's fine. You've got Truro. I've got Provincetown. Larry, thank, <laughs> thanks so much for talking with us. It's a, a great pleasure. And to remind uh, listeners, if you enjoyed this, please think about subscribing. No ads. I'm not selling you a mortgage on this podcast. So if you're grateful for that, chip in. Coming up after Larry, we have Sorab Armory with a, a lively discussion. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll we'll see you next week on the Dishcast. Thank you. <laughs>